Welcome to the Titan Size Podcast. I am Luke Worsham. I am not joined by Matthias Wadner or Will Lomas. Uh, Will and Matthias will be back later in the week joining me to preview the Titans' upcoming matchup against the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, Today we are giving you a bonus middle-of-the-week episode of the Titan-sized podcast. Uh, This was an idea I had because uh, ESPN.com's Cameron Wolf, who has been covering the Titans for ESPN NFL Nation uh, since August when training camp started, he wrote a piece for the Denver Post that went up uh, last week. It was titled, Climbing a Slippery Mountain, Why NFL's Black Offensive Coaches Struggle to Become a Head Coach and a Coordinator. And that article was so well written in that he covered an issue that has become so uh, tense, uh, that issue being race. He covered that issue so well through stats, through analytics, that I wanted to get him on the show to talk about that article, to talk about the problem that minority coaches face in climbing up the coaching ladder, and to talk a little bit about the Titans uh, after two weeks and his time with the Denver Broncos when he worked for the Denver Post. You can follow Cameron on Twitter, at Cameron Wolf, and we are going to welcome Cameron into the show right now. First of all, before we get into talking about your article, during the Titans radio broadcast of Sunday's game, Mike Heath mentioned that the temperature on the field in Jacksonville was 115 degrees. You were down on the field. Was it actually that hot? Uh, 115, I wasn't down there when it was 115. Um, I know when I was down there, I was down there probably about two, two and a half hours before the game, and it was about 95 degrees, and I know it only got hotter. So um, I wouldn't be shocked if it got that hot. It was it was definitely a humid, uh, humid day. So when you decided to write this article about how minority head coaches have struggled historically in climbing up the chain of command and, and the NFL coaching ladder. Were you nervous about the reception it would get? Because these days it's hard to write anything or, or give an opinion on anything, especially an issue of race without being seen as too political or, or being offensive. Did that worry you at all when you started writing this? Um, Honestly, not really. I, I mean, I've written about race and, and uh, culture and just different athletes' opinion on social issues multiple times. Obviously, when you get into that situation, you have to be a little bit more careful on what you say and how you say it um, because, obviously, there are going to be people uh, for and against the topic. So I think it was just you had to be more – I had to be more attentive to my reporting and make sure it was focused on the reporting and not too much on opinion uh, – you know, from anybody involved with the piece. What was it that sparked writing this piece? Did it someone give you the idea? Did you just think about this for a while and you finally decided to, to write something about it? Well, yeah, I think I think the the um, overall the overall issue was sort of known a little bit to me just as far as the coaching industry. I've been around a lot of coaches of color and of not of color uh, in my years, and it's sort of been mentioned in passing. Um, and then I think once Vance Joseph was hired, when I was in Denver, I was working at the Denver Post at the time, there was a lot of stories being written about, and I wrote one of them, about uh, the how he was the first African-American coach in the Broncos, or head coach in the Broncos history. Um, and a lot of that was seen as, you know, I, we got a lot of feedback that, yeah, we're okay, this is positive, and this issue is over. And um, talking to a lot of coaches, there was a thought that, hey, no, this issue isn't over, you know, because we 
got head coaches that are black doesn't mean that this issue that that race is no longer an issue in regards to coach coaching and uh, i think a lot of times us as journalists and us as uh, football fans we like to look at the surface of things the final number and i think once i kind of got word of these things um i thought okay maybe let me look at the numbers a little deeper and figure out exactly what how these coaches are getting into the realm and that's ultimately what got me into seeing some of the eye-opening offensive numbers um, in, in that regard. The first big point of your article is that a vast majority of minority head coaches that advance come from the defensive side of the ball because management has this unfair prejudice that a lot of them probably don't even realize they have that they want the rah-rah coach on defense and they want this technical nerd on offense and as uh, you quoted uh, an NFC offensive position coach who requested to remain anonymous as saying, being a defensive coach is not considered a thinking man's job. It's about reaction and emotion. No one wants to hire a black coach because of his mind. It's very interesting, that point, but it's also very wrong because defense, as with offense, is almost more technical because it's constantly responding and you're, you're constantly reacting. Right, right. I, I think that was that coach's perspective, and I, I think a, a few coaches have their perspective. And it, it may not be um, the reason why offensive or defensive coaches are uh, are successful one way or the other, but I do think that there is a, a view uh, from this coach and, and multiple other coaches' perspective that when, um, whether conscious or not, when people are going about hiring coaches, they say, um, okay, if they need to fix an offense or if they're seeking an offense, offensive-minded coach is more about their play calling, um, how they their, how they go about scheme and the intellect part, portion of the game. But often when you see defensive coaches, um, like you mentioned, you, you, you hear the leadership labels thrown around a lot. Um, and Because and, it's a physical position. It's, it's obviously mental elements going into there. But scheme is less important, um, in my opinion, on defense than it is in offense. Um, I know I worked under Wade Phillips and, and uh, I worked with Wade Phillips in Denver when I was there. And he used to always say my scheme is very simple. They ran a man scheme. Um, they, they really told teams to beat them. They, there wasn't really a lot of complexity in their scheme and they were still the best defense two years in a row. Um, but if you talk about, you know, simple as far as offense, that's, that's almost certainly an, an insult to an offensive coordinator if you call their scheme simple. Um, so I, I think that element, you know, whether, whether now we're, whether, um, you know, uh, perceived or whether it's factual and, and notion is a notion that's had through a lot of, uh, a lot of the coaches that I spoke to about the offensive defense element. There was a really interesting quote you included from Vance Joseph, the first year Broncos head coach. He said, when I hear the term that I'm a leader of men, that's flattering. But ultimately, this is a game of football IQ. That's always a thing you have to fight. My top trait as a football coach can't be I'm a leader. I'm a football coach and a guy who can scheme with the best. Now, being a leader, that's a part of it. That's my job. That's why I got this job. Being a leader is really only a portion of the coach's job. You often hear the term a leader being attributed to a coach. But in reality, it's often the team captains and the guys in the locker room who, who are the leaders. You shouldn't ha- have to want your coach to be the rah-rah guy that's getting everybody energized because that should be the player's job. The coach's job 
is to be schematically successful. And the minority head coaches who have had success, it's not because they're fantastic leaders. It ultimately does come down to the issue of scheme. Um, yeah, I don't know if I would necessarily agree with that um, as far as the head coach. I think oftentimes we um, – and I think that's the point that Anthony Lynn was telling me, and he's the new Chargers head coach. He was one of those assistants that felt like he was – you know, in a position for about 20 years and, and, and kind of got passed over for stuff that he was eligible for. He he talked about how the, the criteria of being a head coach and being an offensive coordinator is not necessarily what is perceived to be at this point because being a great play caller has nothing to do with being a great head coach. I think we seeing, we're seeing more and more these days that the head coach position is becoming more a CEO position and more of a, a, a leadership position rather than a scheme position. Um, you, you typically trust your offensive coordinators and your defensive coordinators mm -hmm. to focus on scheme, um, whereas the head coach typically has a lot more on his plate as far as in-game decisions, as far as managing um, the football team as a whole, as far as um, kind of, uh, I guess, combining everything that goes around in different position groups. So there are still some head coaches that man that position, but I think the majority of head coaches these days don't even call plays. That's really left upon their offensive and or defensive coordinators. So I think the leadership element is, is becoming a lot more important. I know when I was leaving Denver, um, a lot of the reason they hired Vance Joseph, and that's what he talked about, was the fact that they had a situation in 2016 where there was a lot of offensive versus defensive divide in the locker room. And uh, the defense was playing extremely well, and the offense wasn't playing well, and that created tension, and the defensive players just weren't happy about it. And uh, Gary Kubiak, who was the coach before, and he had led them to a Super Bowl, he may not have been the best man to, to manage that situation. Um, and I think that John Elway had that in mind when he was hiring Vance. He thought this was a guy that could have managed that situation a lot better. And I think those are, are, are a lot of things that coaches are thinking about. Uh, I mean, uh, general managers and owners are thinking about nowadays when they're looking for coaches. Um, some, some still look for, hey, we want a scheme guy. But I think what Anthony Lynn was trying to say is that, hey, a scheme guy may not, may not be something that a head coach quality needs to be. I mean, we look at, you know, Josh McDaniels, the guy who was coached in Denver before. He was a very heavy scheme guy, um, but he got to Denver and he, you know, basically crashed and burned. Um, he wasn't a guy who could handle people well. And maybe he's got better in that in that realm, but that's an area where he struggled despite being a great play caller that he still is. So I, I think um, that element of it was important to me. For, from Lynn's perspective and, and to hear people talk about just the criteria that uh, teams often have when they look for those positions. And on the point of guys like Josh McDaniels, another point you brought up that really I think could be the crux of this issue is that 75.9% of offensive coordinators who have been hired in the last like like five years or so were quarterback coaches, and you just don't see that many minority coaches as quarterback coaches as you said there's only two active right now and it's kind of a misconception among management that when you hire this offensive mastermind if you will he has to have worked directly with the quarterback Anthony Lynn you quoted him as saying why do they need to work hand in hand with the quarterback we're missing out on a lot of good coaches because of that criteria yes the quarterback is an important position but there's 10 other guys on the field at a given time yeah, yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right, and I, th I think 
it's a tough dynamic because obviously the quarterback is the most important of the 22 starting positions. Um, but it becomes the question, how much weight do we look at? And do we only hire a guy simply because he's a quarterback coach? Do we overlook other position coaches that are trying to move up the realm um, because they may not have had experience in that realm? And like you mentioned, I thought that was that, that, that was one of the ones that blew me away the most because it is very difficult for um, – a black coaches to get into the quarterback room and it seems to be that's a cross off their list you know if, if you're not in the quarterback room that's a way for um, coaches or general managers to, uh, owners to say hey we're not you're not ready for this position no matter how much experience you have you know you've got guys like you know like I, I mentioned and Bobby Turner and and um, and, and Eric Stoosville and Kirby Wilson guys who coached for 20 plus years at a position uh, but never touched a quarterback and that sort of seems to be what had the only thing that may have prevented them from getting a coordinator position. Um, I mentioned uh, at the, towards the end of the piece, I mentioned David Culley, um, who is now the quarterback coach in uh, Buffalo. He's one of the two um, black quarterback coaches, and he's coached receivers in the NFL um, for, I think, a little over 20 years, most of his time with Andy Reid. And he left that receiver's position um, to go coach quarterbacks in hopes that, hey, you know, maybe this leads me to get in the offensive coordinator position. And I think for me that raised the question, why did he need to do that? Why did he have to go to a quarterback position mm-hmm. to get to where he wanted to be? Um, if he's a good coach, it shouldn't matter. Um, but it seems that it does. Interestingly enough, the Titans are one of the few exceptions to this principle. Their head coach, Mike Malarkey, has been a tight ends coach in the past, in addition to being a head coach for other teams. And their offensive coordinator, Terry Robisky, has been a wide receiver guy for almost the entirety of his career prior to being with the Titans. And if you watch on the sideline, it's not Robisky down there. Robisky's sitting in the booth calling plays, and it's quarterback coach Jason Michael who's working hand-in-hand with Marcus Mariota. This idea of a tight end coach, head coach, a wide receiver coach, offensive coordinator, and a dedicated quarterback coach who works with Mariota it, it's worked really well for the Titans, especially in November of last year when Mariota earned uh, November AFC Offensive Player of the Month honors. It can work. I mean, it, the Titans have proved that. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right that it does, they're an example of somebody who didn't take the traditional path or the traditional criteria criteria in hiring um, a head coach and an offensive coordinator. And I think, you know, like you mentioned, there is still, I guess the jury is still out on on whether or not this, you know, how long this, this thing is going to work. But I think that's an example that, hey, we don't have to go the traditional quarterback path. And, you know, you could hire a quarter, you know, that's a situation where they hired a quarterback coach who had been a previously an offensive coordinator in Tennessee and Jason Michael to man that position. So even though he didn't have direct uh, work with the quarterback position, they trusted him enough to give him the offensive coordinator job and they believe they could bring in a quarterback coach that may work hand-in-hand better with Marcus. And I think that that scheme, that that principle and that setup works well for Tennessee, and I think a lot of black coaches are wondering why aren't there more of those situations. This label that becomes used, especially on that Black Monday when all of the coaches for uh, underperforming teams get fired, this term of offensive genius, it's been given to guys like Adam Gase, uh, Coach Shanahan last year, Josh McDaniels. Uh, these guys are given these these ta- this tag of offensive genius, 
And when you earn that tag, you become a very hot commodity in team coaching searches. And what that's reminded me of is these teams who, on the first day of free agency, want to spend all of their cap room to get players who were released by their former team, probably for a reason, instead of doing it the unconventional but probably more correct way of building through the draft. Teams get excited by these guys, and it's become so odd because these guys will come in, they're labeled an offensive genius, and then two or three years down the road their offense is completely unsuccessful, and they're removed from their job for the next offensive genius. Right, yeah, I think I think that's the – Basically, where um, you know we, it's important, I guess, for us, and that's it's a different story for a different day. The the whole how how much rope do we give coaches, and the fact that there isn't a lot of patience in the coaching industry. It's a mm-hmm. it's a now industry, and it's a, after two years, if a guy hasn't really done much, it's in the hot seat. I heard when I first moved to Tennessee, and it was it was crazy to me. People, we did a story and. They asked how how all the all of the ESPN NFL Nation reporters how um, what one to five what level was your coach on the hot seat, and um, I put Coach Malarkey at a one. I, in my <laughs> opinion, he had one year here, and he increased the team from three wins to nine wins, and that's what you want from your first year head coach. And I had some comments like, "Oh no, Malarkey should be in the hot seat." Blah blah, and I'm like. How do you one? I know some people weren't happy about the hire, but if a coach increases your win total from three to nine in his first year, that should be that should be great. If anything, yeah. he should be looking to get more money rather than worrying about his job security. Um, so that that whole element kind of is an example to me of just the um, the quick take mindset of fan bases and ownerships because they're trying to appease these fan bases and saying, okay, we always need the hot new thing. We need something not to get stale. Um, you know, I, I, people in Denver were calling for Gary Kubiak's job after he had won the Super Bowl, literally. And uh, <laughs> it, it just was puzzling to me. But I think that's, like I said, that's just the, the day and age we were at. So I think the fact that there is every Black Monday and there is those hot offensive coordinators that come up. It'll come up again this year. The guy that we were talking about earlier, Josh McDaniels, there's probably a good chance that he gets another gig coming around next year um, after one of these coaches gets fired. Um, there'll probably be, you know, five or six firings again of guys who may or may not warrant it getting fired. And it's just a cycle of coaches. It's not a very secure spot. Um, it's not. It's a very um, scrutinized spot, but these are what guys sign up for. So I don't think there's any, you know, sorrows about the position as a whole, but I think it is important for uh, us as journalists to highlight issues that are going on. And that was my goal for this story. I talk a lot about players. um, So I thought this was an opportunity to sort of dig dig deeper into the coaches realm and uh, tell a story about, you know, some of the issues they may encounter that many people may not realize. Between this issue of the misconception of the idea of leadership and this idea of offensive geniuses who have worked with the quarterback. Is there one that you think contributes more to this issue of minority coaches rising up the ladder, or is it kind of 50-50 with those two issues? Um, I, I think, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's a combination of a lot of things. I think um, when you look at um, just the, the whole element of um, the fact that this is becoming an offensive-driven league, and it's becoming more about the quarterback. I think there are very few, and Tennessee is one of them, teams that are driven upon the run game. 
where, you know, even though I, I did a piece a few days ago to show that technically, even though Tennessee has run first, they still pass more than they ran last year. So there are technically no teams that that run more than they pass, but Tennessee's considered a run first team because of how often they run compared to the rest of the league. That that's not a, a norm anymore. There are not teams that pound the ball on the ground forty times a week, forty times a game. So it's about the quarterback. And I think the fact that it, it may be just sort of a simplistic view that owners and GMs have had just say, okay, well, who's the best play caller on the market or who's the best quarterback coach on the market when we're looking for an offensive coordinator? Mm-hmm. And that eliminates a lot of candidates. So I think that is a lot of things that hurt, um, you know, African-American coaches. And I, I do think that the um, – also the, the the factor of hey um you've got to be able to prove your genius by being in that quarterback room is sort of a thought that i think is, is had around the nfl and i think there are a lot of smart and 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 capable um coaches that do the job and they aren't coaching those uh quarterback positions they coach receivers they coach running backs they coach offensive line and that and that's not just black and white that um, that's not just black that's white guys too there's there's white guys who are coaching those positions um, that may not have got up the rung because of you know just the position they coach. Um, so I'm not sure if there's an easy fix. Um, I was trying to, I was not trying to um, hand out blame in the article. I just wanted mm-hmm. my goal was to ultimately highlight the issue, um, present the numbers because people can argue with people, but they can't argue with numbers, and really just let the reader take their own um, take their own uh, I guess evaluation of the situation. The part of your article that was the most shocking to me when I read through it the first time was the quote you gave from Bill Polian, the Hall of Fame general manager, formerly of the Colts, who said unequivocally yes when you asked him if other NFL executives had told him that they've interviewed a black coach to satisfy the requirements of the Rooney rule, only to be pleasantly surprised about how the interview went. That was very shocking to me because I feel like a lot of teams do interview a black coach just to satisfy the Rooney rule. But the fact that they're often surprised really points to these issues that we've been talking about. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I thought it was important for me. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad Bill talked to me about the story um, because I wanted that view outside of the coaching realm. And he was a guy who's been a successful general manager in Indianapolis and a guy who, you know, he's with ESPN currently. He's He's been a president. So I thought he had a view uh, a good viewership of one being a white man and one being a guy who's been in those rooms making those decisions and talking to a lot of his colleagues. And I thought he had really good takes, and I couldn't use nearly all that he said to me. I only used two really things, his thing about the Rooney Rule and his, his note about um, uh, what his other colleagues have done as far as the Rooney Rule, as far as Rooney Rule hires. Um, but I, I think a lot of times there are – you know, I, I talked to Anthony Lennon. He said that he, when he interviewed for the Jets, um, the Jets offensive coordinator job, he knew that that was just a a, a job, an interview, just to you know, um, just to uh, get past the Rooney Rule mm-hmm. requirement of having to interview a coach. Um, so he coaches know that, and I think there are a lot of coaches like Bill said that hey, we'll we'll bring in a guy because we have to, and then they do the interview and they're like, wow, this guy actually this guy actually is qualified for our gig. And I think, you know, um, maybe that helps that guy get a job down the line. 
And so maybe it actually helps them. But I think the fact that they're surprised in that sort of interview and that sort of process kind of shows that um, why aren't they considering that guy more seriously than they were. So moving into the Titans' current situation, on Sunday against the Jacksonville Jaguars, Derrick Henry carried the ball 14 times for 92 yards, and his success on the ground against Jacksonville has had fans in a frenzy talking about, you know, has the torch been metaphorically passed from DeMarco Murray to Derrick Henry? We know that DeMarco was on the sideline mainly because he had a hamstring injury. What's your take on this running back situation? Do you see any sort of passing of the torch happening quite yet? Um, I, it's funny because I, I got this immediate question before and I actually wrote an article about it on Monday. I think that, I think it's, it's a notice that is coming. Um, and I don't think it's the passing of the torch quite yet. And we asked Malarkey about it in his press conference on Monday after the game. And he said that, yeah, DeMar- DeMarco Murray is still the starting running back. Derrick Henry's the backup and reps will be determined based on matchups. Um, and, you know, I think that's, probably a fair um, assessment of, of how it's going to be um, barring injuries. And DeMarco's banged up a little bit with that hammy right now. But uh, barring injuries, how most of the way. So I don't think there will be a complete unseating this year. But I think there will be more reps for Derek. I think last year it was something around 72%, 72 to 73% of the carries were to DeMarco. Um, I think we see that number closer to 60-40 or maybe even 55-45 as we get closer to the end of the season. Um, Because I think Derrick Henry has showed that, hey, I can be the power guy, the guy that uh, I loved his quote when he was talking about Jalen Ramsey earlier this year to make make him feel me, you know, make him feel me back. You know, that's that's a a back that, hey, when we're in the fourth quarter and we have a a three-point lead and we have the ball and we got to hold on the ball for six minutes to win this game, you hand the ball to Derrick Henry over and over again and force a defensive tackle. And they did that against Jacksonville, although they were up a little bit more. And Jacksonville just didn't look really happy to tackle. And I don't really know too many people who would be happy to tackle <laughs> that guy. Um, so I, I think that is going to be really important. I think it'll be hard for Derrick Henry to completely unseat DeMarco because DeMarco does things that Derrick hasn't really proven that he could done, do yet as far as uh, consistently pass blocking as far as being a, a complete three-down back that can take you um, throughout a game and be and a guy who can consistently make you know those big 70, 80-yard uh, splash plays down the field. We haven't seen DeMarco do that this year, and I think that's a portion of the reason why Derrick Henry has um, been more successful. But I think as we go along the season, we'll see Derrick get more of those early touches, and it'll be more of a, a, a timeshare rather than, hey, DeMarco – is the guy until he gets tired. You joined ESPN uh, NFL Nation back in August, right before training camp started. Or really, it was back in July, I guess. Since you've been here, who's been your favorite player to talk to, or do you have a favorite interaction with a player so far? Um, Favorite? I don't know if I have a favorite. Um, Maybe one I that's think just memorable. Been, yeah, um... I don't know. I think it's 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 really interesting to talk to Delaney Walker. Um, mm-hmm. I think his personality. For as a reporter, you always root for 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 stories, and you always love to talk to personalities. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why it was you know it was a, such a fun ride for me in Denver because 
regardless of their success, you knew when you went in the locker room, you had guys like Aqib Tlaib and Von Miller and, and those type of guys to talk to. And, and here's a little bit more of a team-oriented, you know, not as big personalities. But Delaney Walker is one of the, the, the bigger personalities on this team. And, mm. um, you know, just some of the, the chats that we've had over the last month or so, and not even stuff that I've written about, just, just kind of just talk in the locker room, you know, sometimes on a Monday where – um, we there's nothing really much to talk about. We'll talk about you know Netflix and he was sharing some of his Netflix favorite <laughs> shows and um, how he doesn't. He was talking about how he doesn't really watch sports at all outside of football. He said you know you know people get too consumed on sports and put athletes on a pedestal and he you just talk about different philosophical stuff and mm-hmm. I think oftentimes as reporters and as football fans we like to put football players in boxes and say that they're only this or they're only that. But I think it's interesting to be in a locker room every day and, and to learn more about, you know, players as a person. And, you know, they're outside of football. Um, they're outside of football, you know, desires and interests. Last question before I let you go. Uh, your first year, I believe, with the Denver Post was the year that the Denver Broncos won the Super Bowl. And oftentimes teams win the Super Bowl because they have stacked personnel that offensive genius coach shines. But the Broncos were an interesting story because of the switch from Peyton Manning to Brock Osweiler back to Peyton Manning, the defense that has essentially been called one of the best of all time. What was it like covering the team that season? Do you have any favorite moments? I mean, just talk about what that was like, I guess. Yeah, that was that was a great experience. I think that year was probably my favorite year as a journalist. I mean, obviously – um, for me, I, I, I grew up as a football fan. I grew up playing football. I love this uh, game. But, you know, obviously you always dream of, of going to a Super Bowl. That was my thing when I was growing up watching football and all that different jazz. But to be able to cover that um, in my first year and cover a Super Bowl winning team, um, that's an experience I'll never forget. Um, I didn't get a ring or anything. And it wasn't, <laughs> I'm not, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. That's often the question people ask me. Hey, no, it doesn't work that way. Might need, might need to get John Elway on that. Right, right, right. But it was, it was fun just to see one, the elation of it, all the players and their faces after they won that you achieve your ultimate goal. You know, 32 teams compete for one thing at the start of the year and only one team is truly happy. Um, and to be, covering the team that was happy was a was a, a, a experience that you know you can't really picture um so yeah that that whole ride was fun um being on Peyton Manning's farewell farewell tour even though I didn't know initially it was going to be that that was uh that was fun I mean I, I grew up watching Peyton as just a fan so being on the other side and covering and, and writing stories about him and what ended up being a rocky year for him personally but for it to end in a way that it did, I think was was um, was storybook, so to speak. And we actually wrote a storybook after about it. So I think um, it was it was uh, it was quite an experience. I think um, I think that year is is probably going to spawn a lot of uh, different different books and and different things from people because there was a lot of go- a lot of stuff going on that year, positive and negative, and um, it, it was just uh, cool to be a part of it. Cameron, you've done an outstanding job covering the Titans since you've come to Nashville. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you doing this interview. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Again, you can follow Cameron on Twitter, at Cameron Wolf. I certainly thank him for taking time out of his busy in-season schedule to join the show. What a fantastic interview that was, and what a phenomenal article 
he wrote. I will have a link to that article on my Twitter, at Luke underscore Worsham, if you want to go find that. And that is it for this episode. Again, Will and Matias will be joining me towards the end of the week to preview the Titans matchup on Sunday against the Seattle Seahawks at Nissan Stadium. Until then, I'm Luke Worsham. We will see everybody, I guess, on Friday when we preview the Titans' upcoming matchup against the Seattle Seahawks. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.